Okay, Chris, did you know? Did you know that when you're walking around the city streets, uh-huh. the New York City streets, you come into contact. You 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 glance at. You walk by uh, a homeless person in in New York City, and maybe they are they have a carriage and they're collecting cans. Did you know that they are not collecting those cans to make the five cents per can that you would make at a recycling center because they need money for food and or shelter? They're collecting those cans because they're actually in the midst of building a fantastical house of aluminum cans in order to capture the essence of a fantastical being that they are imagining that may or may not be the cause of their homelessness rather than, you know, societal uh front like crumbling infrastructure in our society that is that that is causing their homelessness it's actually just a fantasy well i mean that just makes common sense ricky of course i think right? everybody knows that like that is doesn't doesn't it make doesn't that make it so much easier to think and watch a movie or listen to a story about homelessness and it, what's really good to know, too, is that if somebody is homeless, even if they're like ex- very seriously mentally ill, it's not like they need psychiatric treatment exactly. It's just kind of like they need to like snap out of it. You yeah, know? And the only way that they can snap out of it is love. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's basically just the world that we live in every day here right. in New York City. <laughs> It's Monday morning, and I'm Jack Lucas. In the world of talk radio, Jack Lucas was king. Look, I said I want an offer. They can forget it. To stay on top, he did whatever he had to. Forgive me! But one day, Jack went too far. It was Mr. Lucas's offhand remark that seemed to have fatal impact on Mr. Malnick. No matter what I have, it feels like I have nothing. Yo, what's going on? And just when he was about to give up on his own life, he stumbled into Perry's. And I am that degenerate and remove your presence. I like New York in June. How about you? You know who I am? A hood ornament. No. I'm a knight on a special quest. A quest. And I need help. Jack has to do something he's never done before. Isn't she a vision? I'm deeply smitten. Help someone else. I thought that if I could get him this uh, this girl that he loves, things would change for me. On that note, welcome to 30 Years Later. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. This is your other host, Chris Chafin. Chris, say hi. Yes, hello, hello. Hello. Hello, I'm Fuck Chris. you, Ricky. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, today, whoa. we are talking... Whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You're just going to blow on? like. Yeah, I'm going to fucking... blow on. Yeah, you're, you're at, you did my voice like you were in a sketch on a hip-hop album. Like... <laughs> Um, we're a week behind because uh, the other movie that we were going to do that came out this week was Necessary Roughness, which I watched about 45 minutes of, and it was like Major League in football without any jokes. And so I said, I begged Chris to choose a different movie. And so we are a week behind and doing Fisher King, 
which came out September 20th, 1991. That is a week before you are listening to this podcast. Well, a week and 30 years. Well, I tell you, I mean, in all honesty, Ricky, like back in the day, like, of course, the, the opening night was not as much of a thing as it is now in not just in society, but in the film industry. I mean, of course, it was important, but. So I'm which is just to say, would you have seen Fisher King one week later? Of course, of course you would have. Like that's it's completely normal. Yes, so, it, movies yeah. movies stayed in theaters for much longer, and then there was also like a huge window between being in the theater and being on video. Um, yeah, it was it was a wild time, folks. <laughs> if you weren't there for it, let me tell you, you missed out. So we're talking about uh, 1991's The Fisher King, starring Jeff Bridges, Robin Williams, Amanda Plummer, and Mercedes Rule. Directed by Terry Gilliam, written by uh, Richard La Gravanice, and um, this is Terry Gilliam is coming off the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which uh, went way over budget, cost forty five million, and this was he wanted to be a small movie where he didn't have anything to do with the script and he didn't veer from it, and uh, he kept it small. And I have. I don't know if you could tell by the opening of this show, but I have humongous problems with this movie. <laughs> um, uh, it. I, I, we'll get into my problems outside of the problems. I will also say it is one of the most beautifully filmed New York city movies uh, I've ever seen. I love every location is a, is, is it, is either an iconic New York location or if you live in New York, you just know what it is right away. Um, Yeah. And and, it's the kind of thing on New York things that are like, they are, you encounter them when you live in New York, you know, it's a New Yorkers, New York movie. And it's very much a Terry Gilliam movie visually. Yes, so you yes. get to look at New York locations through the eye of, of Terry Gilliam, which is um, a lot of fun because usually you're not looking at real locations through his eye. You're looking at fantastical locations like in Brazil and Baron Munchausen. In this, it's like, oh, there's Central Park, but like with a fisheye lens and like up against uh, Jeff Bridges, like in the, like right up against Jeff Bridges' eye. And with like the, some with part the, of Central Park, like, like I found myself thinking like, where is this exactly? Like it looked familiar to me, but at the same time I was like, where the fuck is this? It was very, very Terry Gilliam, very an interesting little weird section of it. And now, so this movie is about a uh, narcissistic shock jock played by Jeff Bridges, who um, has a personal breakdown when he gives bad advice to someone on the air. And that person goes and commits a mass shooting at a restaurant in New York city cut to a year later He's depressed. He's living with Mercedes Rule above a video store that she owns. And he comes into contact with a homeless man. And homeless should almost be in quotes because he's not actually fucking homeless. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's yeah. the other thing about this movie. This movie doesn't even have the balls to have an actual homeless man in it. Because if it did, it would have to talk about that. Yeah, so he like, doesn't, he's not homeless. He, in fact, lives in a gigantic basement underneath yes, he, a building. You he, know? Lives in, he lives in a place that most New Yorkers would dream of it living in. It literally has like 30-foot ceilings. Like It's, it's so <laughs> offensive. Um, but he comes into contact with this, quote, homeless man, played by Robin Williams, uh, who it turns out uh, was at the restaurant that got shot up. His family, his wife and kid got killed, and now he is living quote on the streets but not and jeff bridges decides to help him and the way that he decides to help him is to help him get a get laid it's literally it's it's almost like a a frat movie at some point where it's like (laughs) i gotta help this guy and like i was watching it last night and he said 
I got to help this guy. And I shouted to get laid because like, that's <laughs> literally what it is. There's a, there's a quirky Benny and June style girl that Robin Williams yeah. quirky character is following around played by Amanda Plummer and hit bridges and Mercedes rule, help them get together. There's a, a conflict where no one does get together. And then of course, everybody gets everybody back together, gets together yeah. at the end of um, the movie. Uh, First things first, as we said, uh, I would watch this movie again in a heartbeat because every image of New York City is gorgeous and fun to watch, especially the iconic Grand Central Station sequence where uh, they shot in the middle of the night and turned it into um, a ballroom waltz. And it's so yeah. beautiful yeah, to Ricky, do that. Talk a little, this is like one of the most iconic, this is like the only really iconic thing from this movie is this whole sequence. It's a waltz in Grand Central Station. I mean, yeah, please tell me about it, Ricky. Well, sorry, the dog came in. Uh, so Robin Williams is looking to meet Amanda Plummer. This is also another one of those movies in the 90s where the main character is a fucking stalker. Well, uh, dude, there is like literally I wrote in my notes, there's a scene where because they've been trying to go on a date, the state that they've been set up on. And it's supposed to be like they don't know each other, you know, and towards the end of the date, he starts to kind of accidentally admit that he's been stalking her and he's telling her like, oh, I know you leave your house at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays yeah. and you always get a salad from Mario's. And and he's all like, I know things. if I know if you've had a bad day, you get this salad instead of that salad. And, and me and Catherine started looking at each other and we're like, oh no, it's all going to get fucked up because he's stalking her. But then she starts to smile. And right. <laughs> in the world of the movie, she thinks it is charming that he has been stalking. This homeless person has been stalking her. But then you realize this is a movie made by fucking dorks in the 90s <laughs> in the 90s and so they're like in their minds they're like it's so sweet that he right. know, that, that like it's so in their minds it's like it's so sweet that i know all these things about this woman who doesn't know me and you know anyway but he is waiting for her in grand central station and the movie turns into a uh a fantasy out of nowhere it's, it's really beautiful Jeff Bridges is on the sidelines talking to Tom Waits, who plays a homeless man. And then all of a sudden, Robin Williams' character envisions all of Grand Central turning into a ballroom. And you get these lovely wide shots and the the, the choreography and blocking of how they move, how the how the uh, perform how the background moves from uh, sort of like walking automatons through Grand Central to their location, all of a sudden into dancing and swaying is really beautiful and seamless and they shot it in like one night when they didn't even close the station down it was just like while it was mostly empty so some of the people on screen are actually people commuting or like you know coming home or going somewhere and i, I actually side note over over the pandemic which we're still in but when we were yeah, in the other right, version yeah. the other version of the pandemic i I cut together some of these videos. I think Chris, you know about this. I cut together some of these videos uh, that were quote unquote power hours, which were 60 clips from 60 movies, each clip a minute and each clip you drink. And the second one I did was all New York city moments. And one of the moments was this grand central sequence. And I hadn't seen the full movie in, a, in enough time to remember any of it. I just remember that sequence. And when I pulled that sequence up and watched it, just the clip, I teared up. Because I had been like, hadn't been in Grand Central in probably in over a year. And I love Grand Central Station. It feels, it feels like a real New York place when you get to, when you, when you go through it. And it was just this idea of being surrounded by people all 
in their own world, walking around each other, hadn't experienced that in so long. And that clip was really meaningful and beautiful. And now watching the movie in its entirety, it is without a doubt, 100% the best part of yes. the movie by, by a, by a country mile. I would yeah, say a hundred percent. I mean, it, like you're saying, it is such, such a beautiful sequence. Um, yeah. I, I really like that. Like, like you were saying the way that they, the background transitions from walking to dancing and then back to walking again, there's something about it that, I mean, I mean, yeah, it is like a dance, right? <laughs> like walking through a gigantic crowd like that. Like the, when you're walking through grand central on a normal day, the way everybody is kind of like bunched up and you have to find these little paths between everyone. Um, so it like really works on that level. Like it makes this kind of intuitive sense, but at the same time is so like otherworldly and beautiful to look at. And it is kind of a long sequence. I'm looking at it on YouTube right now. It's like over two minutes long. Yeah. And it's, it's just long. him walking behind her and the shots of Grand Central and people dancing and like it's pretty and, great. I mean, you would definitely, I mean, I know we say this kind of bullshit all the time, but it's just the kind of like atmosphere piece that doesn't appear in a movie these days. It would, you know, I don't know. And if it did, I don't think it would be shot that well, no. you know, unless it was like Steven Spielberg making West Side Story or someone of that nature, but like just a movie. And know? like just a sequence for kind of no reason. I mean, you it yeah. communicates something and it moves the plot forward, but at the same time, like, you know, not enough to do this, <laughs> you know, like, and to spend and it, as much of the movie on that sequence, you know, it's, uh, it's just a very interesting approach to making a movie that I think you don't find anymore. And in my mind, none of the shots feel rushed in that sequence, even though they shot the whole thing in, at night, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like they had the time they needed to shoot it. Um, yeah. it looks seamless. It, it, yeah. It's a, it's an incredible sequence. Yeah. It's and really that great. is the, the best part of the movie. There's other good parts of the movie too. Mercedes rule is a lot Mercedes of fun. Rule is good. Was I imagining this? And this is the kind of gross thing. Like maybe cut this out. If I sound gross, were they doing something with Mercedes rule where it was like her top was always cut below where there was a tan line on her boob. So there was always like a white part of her boob showing. Was I imagining this? I didn't notice that, but that's so. I, I, I will cut it. I'll cut that out. It's. I swear to God, that was happening with her character. It must have been a conscious choice. Well, there was a whole scene, and this was another scene that uh, that like kind of pissed me off, which is that there's a scene where she's feeding Robin Williams, and he keeps staring at her her breasts, and mm -hmm. the movie thinks that it's funny, and then it tries to. It tries to skirt its way around it, no pun intended, by having Robin Williams suddenly like pretend to hit on her in a joking way. So it's like, was he joking the whole time? It's like, no, he was. No, he wasn't. He's trying to cover for staring at her boobs the entire time. Which is like, if you want to talk about this, this guy who lives on the street, who probably hasn't touched another woman in ages uh, and is maybe like pretty horny, like, okay. <laughs> let's let's be honest about that i think that's i think that's okay and i think that's also i'm empathetic toward towards that but the movie by being scared of actually approaching that in a realistic way ends up making it worse because it just wants to it feels like the filmmakers think it's cute rather than what it actually is and well, what and requires empathy when he stands up on the table and starts to take his dick out to like get her pregnant and she keeps saying like stop it stop it don't do it but I mean, the thing, the reason, the thing we're not talking about here is like the reason that this is different than what it might be is that it's Robin Williams doing it. It's like absolute prime time Robin Williams doing these like 
fucking Robin Williams stuff all over the place. I mean, all over how, the place. how are you, how did you feel about this? Cause like, I definitely go through waves where, you know, for a long time I thought he was like completely insufferable and I just hated all the stuff that he did. It made me so angry. Um, but then, you know, I, I do appreciate it also. I mean, obviously he's like hugely, I don't know, you know, it's good. I mean, it's, he wasn't famous for 40 years for no reason. Like it's good, you know, it is good. And especially a movie like this, which is right in the sweet spot of him doing like serious Robin Williams stuff. Um, I love, uh, I, I, I love, uh, I actually love Goodwill hunting. And I think he's really beautiful in that movie. He's good in that movie. I, I love the way that they make him reserved and sort of beard him up and, 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 and make him hold back all of that energy um, and I think he's great when he does that. Uh, sometimes when he does his Robin Williams shtick, I think it's funny. Often I find it insufferable. Find in this so movie, un- I've seen it in on like on Letterman so many times, right? In this movie, I found it more than insufferable. I f- I found it um, really cowardly. <laughs> Uh, well, he's trying to do, I think in this movie, that he's trying to do both things. So this is post-Dead Poets Society, post-Good Morning Vietnam, but it's pre-Mrs. Doubtfire and Aladdin and all that stuff. So I think it's like he's doing both. He's being like 70s Robin Williams and doing these crazy, silly runs, but he's also trying to do it like with pathos, you know? <laughs> Which is a pretty difficult line to walk. And I think I, sometimes I found myself really moved by his performance. You know, like there's he goes out on a date with this woman he's obsessed with. They have a great time. She kisses him. And then it's like he starts having remembering his wife and he's seeing his hallucinations again. And he's crying in the street and he's saying, just let me have this. Like, I like that. I thought that was well done. It was well acted. It, I was touched by that. But like, you know, certainly other times when he's like jumping up around and talking, yeah, he's saying like, someone has to get you pregnant. I got to take my dick out. You know, I was like, well, look, I mean, all I all all you have to know about this movie is that the Wikipedia says about his character, Perry, a delusional homeless man who claims his mission is to find the Holy Grail. Oh, yeah. And this has fucking nothing to do with the plot. Also, it's like there are so many things that are so fucking. But then it does this movie. Yeah, but then it does, and because it's instead of, and you know, it's this rom- it's it's such an absurd romantic idea of homelessness. You know, oh, what if the whole what if what the homeless guy was saying wasn't actually crazy, and he actually had a holy grail that he was in search of, or like, what if the homeless man looking inside the restaurant right. window wasn't hungry, he was looking at a girl he had a crush on in yeah, a cute see. way. You know, like, oh, what if the homeless man lived in a boiler room that was very well decorated and populated by all of these little cute knickknacks? You know, I agree with you 100 percent. But I think what you're like overlooking is like these guys, these Terry Gilliam guys, like these guys that were like rich as shit all through the 80s and stuff like I'm just thinking of in um, that Chevy Chase movie we did where he's leaning out his window yelling random things at homeless people to make fun of them. Like, that is their baseline attitude. So even for Terry Gilliam to be like, what if a homeless person had a complicated inner life? Like, that's like unbelievably enlightened for his class at that time. I mean, yeah, I I completely agree with you. And I think that's where we're, we're running into the 30 years later 
yeah, 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 <laughs> like the 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 like this movie might be the reason why we made this podcast because <laughs> it is um, at the time for Terry Gilliam to be like, oh, what if a homeless guy was like just a regular guy like you and me, but he fell on some hard times, you know? Like, well, it's like what if a homeless man had an interior life, right, and for some yeah. reason, the only way that you can address address a homeless man's interior life is by completely denying the sort of baseline uh, physiological. Uh, actual needs that a that a that a homeless person has and thereby denying the their their homelessness in a lot of ways so like instead instead of being like you know this this man is homeless because uh you know the there isn't there there's a housing crisis or because you know either the the mental all the mental health facilities of the 80s have basically been shut down and people have been tossed out into the streets you know, instead of even caring about that, because why would you ever care about actual societal issues and how we live as a society and communally? All you want, all this movie cares about, it's such a product of the 90s in the sense that it's solely individualistic. It's this man's fantasy. Right. It's this man's, his inner life is his fantasy, and that is what is keeping him him homeless. And I mean, we haven't even really talked about, and you know, not to change the subject from the sub, the, from the the depiction of homelessness in the Fisher King, which I I can tell you feel strongly about. You know, I you know it is it is, I, and along the lines of what you were talking about, I think it is interesting that they give Robin Williams a home, and they kind of just make it seem like he's fine living how he's living, because there there is another way to think of this movie where the Jeff Bridges character is like fuck do i gotta let robin williams move in here like i guess i really should let him move in but i'm not sure or like then he does let him move in you know like where it would weigh on you that it was like i hope he was okay last night like is he in jail like i don't know you know right, but he doesn't have to worry about that stuff because right. he has a home because he has a home right so that just removes all of that from the situation which in real life that would be like a major major part of the situation like should i give him money I wanna... so that he can like get an apartment like you know right and he gives the money to somebody else <laughs> yeah right. uh i want to i want to bring up one more aspect of this in the week since because I'll, I'll try to let it go the the depiction of homelessness <laughs> in a moment but i was i could not believe that the movie was this unself-aware even though i know it's 1991 but one of the major turns for jeff bridges's character in the movie is that he goes back to being a shock jock when he thinks he's saved robin williams's character and in the midst of this, he goes to take a pitch for a sitcom, which he was supposed to get before he had his nervous breakdown at the beginning of the movie. And the, the sitcom pitch is a sitcom about three homeless men who, of course, are wise and funny, but at the same time, homeless. homeless. And the guy pitching it is cynical. And he's like, but we're not going to attack the homeless thing too much. So it's too sad for anybody. They're wise guys. They're wise. You know, they're funny. And like this causes Jeff Bridges's character to have like, to like go and save Robin Williams when it's like, um, this has been this movie. That's the movie you're in right now. Yeah, like, like, wh like wh how dare this movie think this man is somehow more cynical than what this movie already is? <laughs> now this movie's like, dealing really in depth with the problem of homelessness, Ricky. I think, like, at least in this sitcom, they probably lived in like a tent camp or something <laughs> that was like actual homeless people live. They don't live in like weird humongous boiler rooms i think that was kind of a trope back then though the idea that homeless people in new york lived in some kind of like palatial abandoned place right and it was a trope that allowed people to not have to feel bad about about homelessness, to not have to confront the, it the people that live in the subway what is that movie called 
underground, underground or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, but like, is that real? I mean, is that does that really happen? Does the, it happen but that's anymore? Like, but that's like a really dangerous place that they live. That's not. <laughs> it's not a yeah. cool palace. That's <laughs> underground. They're and with it's like completely pitch black around them, and like yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas in this, and also the scene where he, he Jeff Bridges finds out uh that robin williams's family was killed in the massacre that was you know the jeff bridges was the catalyst of it's very funny he comes storming out of the the boiler room and all of a sudden a a man the janitor for the building or something comes up and he's like are you with perry and he's like uh what and he's he's like well look i let him live down there because of the tragedy he's like what tragedy (laughs) and he goes you know the one involving his family with the guy who learned from the radio to go shoot up the the, 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 the restaurant. They killed the. It's like the most hilarious expositional scene that comes out of nowhere, and the guy has nothing else to do the rest of the movie. They don't even give him anything to do in that scene, but and, say very on the nose things about what you need to know about Robin Williams's character. And it's completely crucial to the film that this information yes. get conveyed. And it, without it, there would be no movie. But this is the way that it is doled out. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, one of the things I really liked about, I mean, not necessarily liked, but I, I thought was interesting. Is Chris, in you very- can like things about the movie just because I didn't like it. It's okay. You can I, like it. Look, I know I can. I can fucking like whatever I want, Ricky. And the fact that you think you're influencing my opinions is honestly very cute to me. <laughs> Um, it's just the beginning, the opening sequence where we're getting Jeff Bridges as the shock jock, and we've been talking about Robin Williams, but like Jeff Bridges is the star of the movie, like theoretically. Um, it's shot in this way with the, he's in this little recording booth that's all gray, and it's like he's smoking cigarettes, and there's these like 1940s movie shadows on the wall of like bars going up, and it's shot from above, or it's like tight on his mouth, and I was just thinking like uh it's like extremely terry gilliam number one it's like extremely late 80s number two which i guess is kind of justified because then it like flashes forward to the present you know technically it's a flashback um but like to me watching that sequence i was like oh i'm about to see a terry gilliam movie like i i kind of forgot about that well i think that's one of the things that i love about the movie is that or not love about the movie, but at least like about Ricky, the movie. It's okay that... to love things about the movie. You can, but uh, Terry Gilliam and I, I basically already said this, but every scene he finds a way to shoot in a way you wouldn't expect. Yeah. The shot selections, while you could say, "Oh, this is very Terry Gilliam," it still doesn't feel uh, like he's looking for ways to cover the scene in an inch that that are that are interesting and new. Yeah, and he's definitely just like approaching it with you know, a kind of a blank slate eye and being like, okay, what would be the most interesting way to, to look at this scene, you know? And what would yes. be the most, like, what would communicate the most with the camera? And I guess that's kind of what he's talking about when he says he didn't want to have anything to do with the script. He just wanted to, like, direct the movie, you know? Because and there's that... certainly other huge Terry Gilliam elements, like Robin Williams' hallucination, which is, a like, a yes. giant red knight on horseback with, like, flames coming out of it. And, I mean, honestly, it reminded me a lot of Don Quixote, and I thought it made me think of Terry Gilliam's history with Don Quixote, and I was like, oh, he could see it even here. Like, he's just, it's all he can think about, you know? And And honestly, how cool does that character look riding through central park it looks fucking amazing that dude. scene is amazing when they're when he when he first sees him and then bridges is chasing williams through the park as they're chasing that character it's incredible and it's just like i think this is one of the 
I think part of what makes it incredible is the attention to detail in how the the knight looks. It's not just like a red knight. It's like he's got all these crazy things coming off of his armor and there's all these crazy things on his horse and there's fire behind him and fire coming out of him and he's holding like a giant weapons and shields. And I also thought that was one of the real Terry Gilliam elements of the movie. It's not just the knight, but like his attention to detail in like the set dressing, I feel like. I feel like he's very into, you know, every frame was crowded. Everybody's house was full of shit. Like, and things are always like getting knocked off the walls or like, you know. No, the production design on this movie is, 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 is fantastic. Like the production design, the cinematography, the editing are all, are, are all great. And the performances are good too, if you're into what they're doing. Right. But it just kind of has this kind of, and I guess it's down to the script, you know, but it just, there's well, too many things going on. Like it doesn't really connect for me. It's kind of this weird, broad comedy. Like it's almost yes. like this movie wants to be that Eric Idle movie that we did. Oh, the, uh, the, the um, Robert Downey movie. The Robert Downey movie. But instead it was directed by Terry Gilliam. So it's this, you know, like. Well, again, like the scene where they run through the park uh, uh, chase this guy is again and I, I hate to attack this again but it's followed by a scene where robin williams's character gets naked in the park to like look at the stars yeah or the sky or something and he's like let's get naked and jeff bridges is like you're crazy i'm not getting naked with you everybody's blah, gonna blah. think i'm a gay blah 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 yeah there's a there's some there's some there's some stuff like that in this movie yeah um sure, but i yeah. a little actually like a little more sensitive than i expected um but uh, because he's not scared of being noticed for being gay, he's scared of being uh, uh, gay bashed, right. which is I think more interesting than him being like I don't want to I don't want to be gay. He's like, no, people get like, gay people get beat up. Well, it is I interesting. I don't want that to happen. Like, but along wait, the wait, okay, okay, but okay. but you say your little thing. Say your little thing. You think it's yes? So smart. Let me Go finish ahead. saying my little thing because this is a great example of what I was talking about before, which I'm going to talk about again. Which is that he takes his clothes off, and the reason that Robin Williams's character in the movie takes his clothes off is because he thinks that you know he wants to feel the air, he wants to be naked with nature, and it's like you know uh, he's he's kind of like the um, the the quirky the. Um, the, what's what's the the man, he's kind of like the manic pixie character right who's teaching stuck he up jeff a, jeff bridges how to how to man- loosen up oh yeah god. he's the manic pixie dream girl oh and my god ricky you he, fucking broke this movie wide open Robin he teaches <laughs> jeff bridges how to live but the thing is is that what you're actually seeing is something that you see on the streets of new york city all the time which is a naked homeless man and it's not in new york city you see it in every city and like to be like the man, the, the homeless man is naked because he wants to commune with nature, maybe, but also maybe it's because his clothes haven't been washed in weeks and they're fucking itchy and he hasn't had a place to take a shower and he's got bugs and he's hungry. Like there's all of these different things that like it, by making it him wanting to commune with nature, you're allowing the audience to not have any kind of responsibility in regards to homelessness or have to take into consideration what about their life and the economy that they participate in makes this person get naked in the middle of the street, makes this person not have a home, stare inside of a restaurant while I'm eating. So it just becomes like so many examples that are very obviously a screenwriter being like, what does a homeless man do? Well, they sometimes get naked and it's like, well, and then completely crossing out why that would be practically and being like no 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 it's because they're fun 
It's because they want to have fun. So the audience doesn't have to think about it at all. Ricky, so you what know, are we even watching? It's the job. Look, it's my. It, you know, it's the job of the screenwriter to tell a good story. Ricky, like, it, did, uh, if he had written it differently, you think he would have solved homelessness? <laughs> I, I, I think he could have written a very similar movie, uh, while at the same time not negating the 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 reality and the dignity of homelessness yeah, as much yeah, as he yeah. does. I mean, no. there is a real lack of dignity in this movie when it comes to the homeless. Well, I think isn't what we're saying like the op- not the opposite. I'm not saying like he's giving them too much dignity, but I'm saying he's like locating the the trauma in a very particular way, and he's not saying that he's crazy or that he's a loser. He's in fact saying like he's a, a very high achieving person who suffered some unimaginable trauma that you know could have made any of us go through what he's going through. So like, I, I guess, I but I mean, I, that, that, I that's think, you know? that's if that's if you don't see dignity. In Robin Williams is e- the most every noble person. character in the movie. Like he is the wise, noble. You know, like if sure, anything, it's but almost he's like also a magical black man kind of trope. It's like the magical homeless right, man. But but know? but yeah, but do 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 you ever hear uh, like uh, black people talk about how much dignity they see in the 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 token magical black right, character yeah, no because yeah, they can't yeah. see themselves in that there's actual no representation that character is there to make the white character or in this in in this scenario the sort of the higher income the person that is not impoverished per, the not impoverished person feel better about themselves right because if they were to actual actually consider the reality they would have to consider how they live their lives well, I think this movie does have some interesting things along these lines. Like, for example, the real monsters in the movie are like two dudes that drive around Dumbo looking for homeless people to beat up. And like those are the cat people who are the catalyst of, of the events and then also who come in at the end of the movie uh, in a similar way. Like, and I thought that was a really interesting choice that it's just like these random, fa- they're faceless, right? They're not characters. They're just like a kind of force of nature. And it's this, these kind of like gentrifier murderers. And they just hop out of their cars and they go, we're sick of looking at you. Why should I have to pay so much money? And I got to look at you. And then they like beat people up and try to murder them. Um, which, I mean, that's an interesting choice. You know, that's that's an interesting person to make the villain of the movie. I thought, I thought an interesting choice was having Jeff Bridges's character be in media. Um, <laughs> and, and, and by that, I mean, he's constantly serving poison to, to, to the public. Yeah. I um, thought you might have and, a lot of thoughts about this because, you know, cause he's a host, right. And he's like disgusted by the vermin, the poison that he's spoon feeding people that's causing violence in the world. I thought yeah. that might connect with you. Yeah. <laughs> You're the host with me, man. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you have, a you used to have a, you know, a hosting career that was more, <laughs> but I think you felt similarly about, right. You know? Yeah. I felt like I was, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I never necessarily felt like I was spewing poison as much as I was just spewing, um, a lot of, uh, banality that didn't do anything for me and I had no goals. And so I got really, it just mostly got boring. Um, and I, and I got sick of pretending I liked things that I didn't like. Um, that's why I just became really hard. I hated, I hated pretending to like things I didn't like. It was honestly like, it made me feel really, really bad. Yeah. And like, and then when you talk to people who can pretend that they like things that maybe they don't like, 
you know, you can tell that you're not like, you're not one of them, you know, yeah. because you express yeah. an opinion and their eyes glaze over because they don't really have opinions. They don't care. People I know that are very successful in the music industry, I feel like don't have strong opinions about music, you know? Yeah. Like, they don't really care one way or the other. Like, whereas me, I like cared about it so much and it was, it was like torture. Yeah. And it's like, good for you guys. Like, I'm glad that you can do this. I, 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 I just, yeah, I, I really couldn't do it. But I like that, you know, uh, Jeff Bridges' character is like he's not a rich guy in finance or something. He is kind of yeah. contributing to the atmosphere uh, in this in this sort of in this poison with this poisonous rhetoric. I also want to say that there is a, a a sequence near the end of the movie where Robin Williams' character uh, ends up in a in a in a hospital, um, a mental hospital, and the depiction of this hospital. Again, it's like, what the fuck was the deal in the 80s and 90s? Like, I, I mean, maybe this is coming off of depictions of mental hospitals in the 50s and 60s, and this is where this is coming from. But Terry Gilliam's, like, where Robin Williams is, it's like there's a guy bleeding from the head that oh, nobody's yeah. tending to. Yeah. Everybody's just, like, talking to themselves this and miserable Terry- looking. It's like it's like I, a preview of 12 monkeys I but feel like, like this is just terry gilliam being like you know oh a madhouse like from charles dickens <laughs> you know like this is his like way into something like this and he like maybe ha- saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest like but maybe not he didn't see the whole thing you know right but it has resonance being placed next to all of this sort of like individualistic these individualistic takes on homelessness right where there is no collective issue as to why the why people are homeless, and you know what, so there thereby, is, there is thereby, when we see these social institutions, they're fr- they're falling apart and they're disgusting and they're mismanaged because they're a social institution of some kind, right? And the implication in these scenes is like, we've got to rescue Robin Williams from here. He's not one of these people. Like these people yes, are all exactly. Fucked up. He's not one of them, and it's like his girlfriend is giving him all sheets and pajamas and he's very clean and everything's nice around him with the implication being like, Oh, just nobody cares about these other people, you know, like, right. um, And like, no one should, right. No one should. They're just like worthless, like crazies. Whereas Robin Williams, he, we can save him. If he just gets a kiss, he's like sleeping beauty at this point. He literally is sleeping beauty. It's a fable where she kisses him and he becomes normal or no, he kisses her at the end. He becomes normal because he gets the Holy grail, which barely makes fucking sense. It's so stupid. Sense doesn't make any sense. You know, and and then all of a sudden he's like, all the homeless people are singing for all the people, not homeless people, all the people in the institution are are singing to with Robin Williams. It's and it's yeah. There's all this stuff with the Mercedes rule, Jeff Bridges stuff too, where one of the major plot lines of the movie is their relationship, but all their scenes are like pretty poorly written. I would say they're all just Jeff Bridges going like, Hey baby, come on, you know, I love you. And she's like, when are we going to get married? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not she's, she's not the it's most not realistic. Great. She does everything she can with that performance. Oh, for sure. She's like really, I mean, like I was saying last week, like she's really like living. She's trying so hard to be like a person, but the writing is not very good. <laughs> the writing is not very good. On that note, Chris, uh, what was your favorite part of this movie? Oh, I mean, 
I unironically probably and like on a kind of surface level, my favorite thing is just the way that cool ass red knight looks. <laughs> like I yeah. thought, honestly, anytime I cut to the red knight, I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> like this is cool. Like I, I this it gave the movie a lot of like gravitas. You know, a lot of times in a movie when a home a homeless person is having hallucinations, they would not bother to make them look this cool. So like I thought that was really great. And also, I mean, if I'm being honest, I have to say. You know, the Robin Williams performance, obviously every Robin Williams performance is colored by the fact that he committed suicide. And so you just have to go back at everything he's ever done. And in the moments of like depression and despair and, you know, despondent disconnection from other people, you just have to think like, oh, like that's real. Like, and it's very interesting to think of his performances in in that way. But isn't Um, there, isn't there... Like something else to his suicide, where he was recently yeah. diagnosed. With he something had some kind of degenerative brain disease, and yeah, it was only going to get fam- worse. And, his you know. family came out, and they were kind of like, he did not kill himself because he was depressed. Yeah, it was because he was going to die of this brain disease, and it was going to be terrible. But I mean, yeah. okay, fine, yes, that is true. But like at the same time, he like hung himself in his garage or something. You know what I mean? I I don't know. I think you have to say that he was suicidal because he did, in fact, commit suicide. Like, if right. that doesn't mean you're suicidal, I mean, that is the definition of suicidal, you know? Yeah. I think um, I think my favorite part of this movie, just because we haven't talked about it yet, um, I have other favorite parts. I mean, my really, my favorite part is the way David New Hyde York Pierce, looks. is it? David Hyde Pierce? No. Uh, is the way New York looks in this movie. That's, That's my favorite part. There's, That's like, great. so many scenes where it's a, blo- a street that I know, or a part in Central Park, or somewhere, or somewhere downtown, and it just... Um, it, you know, there's a lot of movies set in New York around this period of time, but none of them look like this movie. And it's there's something very yeah. special about it. And so that the oh, Grand can Central I, Station. Can I say? Can I say on that on that point? One of the things yeah. we didn't. Well, I mean, I didn't specifically mention is like the. So yeah, the the place where the villains, the gentrifier murderers, attack the homeless people is this kind of set they've set up in Dumbo, like under the literally under the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's got all this trash and all this smoke coming out of it. And it was, I don't know, it was very interesting because like that's literally a place where there's a park now that's beautiful. And I did find myself thinking like, is this really what New York is like? Is this Terry Gilliam's vision of what New York was like at the time? It it was very like, I, I found myself falling down a rabbit hole, like getting and trying to get into this alternate reality where like this was the most dangerous place in the entire world was this spot where you can buy like an $8 ice cream cone now, you know? Well, and there's a whole moment where they're in central park and it's, it's, I think it's nighttime or it's about to be nighttime. And Jeff Bridges is like, we need to get out of here. You cannot be here at night. Yeah. yeah you know, exactly. like we will get, which I mean, I still probably wouldn't go to central park at night to be honest with you. I wouldn't <laughs> either. No, you know, or even like prospect park. I don't think I would go there, but um, what's interesting about that though, about the Dumbo thing is that, this movie also does a very good job of not giving a shit about how close certain locations are to yes, each other in yeah, terms 100%. of New York. Like one moment they'll be in Central Park and the next moment they'll be in Dumbo. And it's like, okay, that's great because <laughs> it is this weird, like f- that's the one thing that works about the fantasy right? is that it's, it's kind of like a, fan- a fantasy New York. So you can go wherever it's a cool location. 
yeah, you can just like run out of Central Park and then you're in Dumbo like 10 seconds later. You know, it's totally fine. It doesn't doesn't matter. Like it's it's yeah, like you're saying in this dreamscape New York City. Uh, well, I think it, it's and it works. It's vis- it's interesting to look at. You know, well, I think it's because he makes it interesting to look at. Whereas most movies and TV shows that we see in New York, when they jump from one location to another that's really far, they're sort of shooting it in like re- in very naturalistic ways. So all you can kind of focus on is the reality of it. Whereas with this, you can just focus on oh, that's a cool spot in the city. That's a good spot to shoot. He's cool. arranged cool. it. Yeah, it's like a. I mean, it's like a cartoon, right? You know, it's like the yeah. bridge is there, and there's a impossibly high stack of cardboard boxes and smoke everywhere, and like light beams coming through it. You know, and you're just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, this looks this looks dope. Yeah. Um, but that's it. I, it's not my favorite part of the movie, but I wanted to call attention to it, which is that whenever Jeff Bridges is from the, in the beginning of the movie and then close to the end of the movie, he becomes a uh, a shock jock again whenever he's in his um radio recording room you know his studio the yes. camera is overhead his radio recording him. room is that what you said yes. <laughs> the camera is the camera is overhead looking down on them uh and it's kind of pushing it's kind of like lowering in on him but like the way that the shadows are on the walls for some reason it looks like prison bars yeah uh, along the walls, which I thought was a very funny um, symbolic. I touch said that there. before when I was talking about it that the shadows look like prison bars. You did? I missed it. Yeah, well, I wasn't listening to me either. Don't worry about it. Like, Sorry. <laughs> when did you say that? When I was talking about the beginning of the movie and how it's like a very Terry Gilliam y, and I was, you know, going through the color palette and the shadows. And um, oh. maybe I probably stepped on it. I probably stepped on it and didn't say it good. Um, um, but which is just to say, Ricky, I totally agree with you. I thought that was also pretty cool. You know, I thought it was funny. I was kind of like, okay, we get it. We get it. Yeah, he's trapped <laughs> like, in a prison of his own he's creation. A, yeah, he's this he's shock a, this jock, is, you know, this and is he, a prison. Yeah. He's he isn't free. He needs his manic pixie homeless man to set him free. Yeah. He's, he's just like and constantly being more provocative because it's the only thing he thinks people want from him. And he's trapped yeah. in this world of money and success and, you know, can't can't do anything about it so chris uh what was the most 90s thing about this movie for you so this is i'll tell you my real answer in one second but just because we didn't talk about it yet one of my favorite 90s things about this movie is the way that jeff bridges is styled after he has his collapse which is i think just that he looks and dresses exactly like terry gilliam (laughs) like he's got like a long black gray ponytail a gigantic silk overcoat and then like several layers of suits and shirts underneath that and like big big pants and i'm just like okay it's about if i can get it terry like yeah this is how you dress yeah Jeff. oh yeah he looks exactly like terry gilliam yeah he looks exactly exactly like terry gilliam yeah. i was like this is pretty fucking dumb <laughs> terry and also he made such a big deal about how he's like oh i didn't write the script i just wanted to direct the movie and then he has the main character look exactly like him like okay great good job um yeah. but the most 90s thing there is a moment where in the in the um pre downfall Jeff Bridges time, he's in his apartment and a beautiful woman that he's having sex with or has just had sex with is standing in the foreground flipping through his artful CD collection, which is supposed to be one of the signs of how rich he is that he has a fucking CD collection and this cool CD holder on top of his TV or something like that. 
Uh-huh. And what is he listening to? Like he puts on a song and while he's hanging out in his like penthouse apartment and he puts on like the corniest fucking song. I wish I, I don't could remember. remember. I don't fucking remember, dude. Hold on. I'm going to, I have to see, I have to see, I have to see. Yeah. Yeah. The song is the song that plays through the whole movie and it's, I've got the power. I've got the power. That's right. I feel like we have not talked about how that song plays in the whole fucking movie. That's like his theme of when he's a sellout. Oh, that's like his theme to his radio show or something. This movie is so confused. It is so confused because it really is trying to say something about materialism and and like the 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 sort of shallow individualistic side of this character, while at the same time it just refuses to acknowledge the bare minimum of realities that come with being homeless. It's like, I mean, Ricky, we were talking about Robin Williams being the manic pixie dream girl. That is why the movie is not making those, those insights is because it's from the perspective of Jeff Bridges and right. everything about Robin Williams character is only important in so much as it impacts Jeff Bridges. So yeah, like as much they, as it serves Jeff Bridges's it, lesson, it does. And you know, thereby the author and thereby the viewer, you know, like yes. it doesn't, the homeless person exists to change your life, not to have their own life. Uh, and this, by the way, gets me to something that I think is like, um, oh, wait, you have to say your most 90s thing. What's, what's your most I've got 90s the, thing? I've got the power. I've got the power! I've, that's the most 90s thing about this movie. Ab- yes, absolutely 100% the most 90s thing about this movie. It's so on the so on the nose, so hitting the nail on the head. Like When did that song come out? That song came out... The power snap 1990. 1990. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Album World Power. I bet this is a fucking good. The cover to this rules. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I'm gonna fucking listen to this record. I mean, that's a hit. I mean, that's a good song. Um, but yeah, no. But I was gonna say, my one of my things that I think we've grown out of talking about how Robin Williams only exists to impact Jeff Bridges. Okay, so the plot, and we sort of alluded to this, but just to say it outright, it's like Jeff Bridges got a caller who was very happy. So he thought he was in love with someone. Jeff Bridges said, you're imagining it. These people don't like you. Like, you're a fucking idiot. And he, the guy's like, okay. And then he goes to the the restaurant where this woman works and he shoots it up with a shotgun, which is makes it, I think, a very early mass shooting movie. I don't know how many mass shooting movies there were before this. And, yeah, I agree. And then Jeff Bridges feels bad, quits his job. And eventually he figures out Robin Williams's wife is one of the victims in, in which, in a scene which they eventually show. And I really admired the way. So she gets shot from the back with a shotgun and literally a piece of her head flies into Robin Williams's mouth because they're like eating dinner. It's, it was really well done. But, um, so it turned, you know, of course, Jeff Bridges finds this out and he feels responsible and that's why he's helping Robin Williams. Okay. So far, so good. But here's something that this movie doesn't have that I think a modern version of this movie would have to have is Jeff Bridges never admits to Robin Williams that this is what happened. Like, I guess we're supposed to assume that maybe Robin Williams somehow already knows, but like also maybe not at all. And definitely the scene does not happen. He said he, there's a a moment in the movie where uh, I, I said, I was like, how much more interesting would this movie be if he would just tell him who he was and then they had to build a relationship after that? Yeah. 
yeah. and like we could like then the movie could like really begin rather than on obvious uh, constantly being like holding secrets you know and but then all of a sudden he they're they're laying in central park together and this is the middle of the movie and jeff bridges talks about who he is to robin williams so the idea is that robin williams knows who he is but he is unwilling to remember who he himself is which is uh, a little too um a little too easy for for the movie you know because at one point he tries telling robin williams who robin williams actually is and right he, yeah williams like falls into the street and fucking screams starts right. crying because right. he doesn't want to remember his painful past and you know that's a trigger for all of his hallucinations and stuff right um right in that scene does he tell him like i'm the reason your wife got killed he doesn't say that explicitly, but he says his full name and he, you know, like if the custodian who lets Robin Williams sleep in the boiler room knows that like it was because of some disc jockey, Robin Williams' character sure as shit knows who Jack whatever Jeff Bridges' yeah, name yeah, yeah. is. But there's uh, something about the just... way they're playing that scene where I, I know you're right that Robin Williams isn't supposed to want to remember who he is. And that's that's what happens is he starts to say, like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? Yeah. Um, But it is. But to me, too, it's like somehow it's not connecting. Like, if that's what's happening is that he's having this psychotic break and isn't listening. Like, did that confession really connect? You know, I didn't feel from that scene like he had confessed anything to him. I don't know. I mean, maybe I was just falling asleep. I was falling asleep a lot during I don't, this movie. He's not, conf- he's not confessing to him. He's just talking about himself. Right, right. That's how it seems to me, is that he's talking yeah. about himself and his life. But he's talking about... He's using his own name. But this he's is what ta- I'm saying. There's not a scene where he's like, look, you gotta know, I'm the reason that your wife got killed, you know? I feel yeah. like that scene would be in this movie, in in a modern version of this movie. I don't necessarily say rightfully. No, I don't think so. It should be there. You don't think so? Like, should the scene be there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I agree with what you were saying about like, uh, it would be interesting to see them build a relationship once the truth is out there. But in a way, I mean, I always think stuff like that is more realistic if you just lie about things and hide uncomfortable truths, because isn't that what everybody does all day, every day, you know? Like, I, I mean, it rings true to me. So in that way, I don't necessarily think you have to do, go the other way. Hmm. Don't fucking judge me. <laughs> I'm not judging. You. I'm not judging. You. I just don't have a, I just don't have a follow. Yeah. What do you think we've grown out of Ricky? What do, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure I, uh, I went through that. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> All sure I, homelessness I, stuff. I, I Carl Marx. Jesus. You want to row our boats out into the middle of the lake, Mal? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't think I, I, but I also don't think that you could rightfully could make a movie like this now because I, I think we're just like a little too deeply embedded into the politics of inequality in this country, even in very peripheral ways to talk about homeless people. Yeah. Like, like, how does that Will Smith movie about homelessness go? Like, 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 did you see that one? I feel like that's a good barometer for like mainstream culture right now. Isn't that the one where he becomes a stockbroker? Yes, yes, that one. Yeah, yes. I mean that was kind of, and that was universally, uh, you know, mocked when it came out. The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, but that's like spelled weirdly, right? That's they always try to. They always try to give um, homeless people these 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 stories. You know, these the like everybody has a story. Everybody has narrative. Yes, but like it's not one reason. 
why somebody is 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 homeless you know so but i mean how else can like, you tell a story do you me. know what i mean i mean it has to be telling these intractable institutional stories i mean it's they're very difficult i mean that's how the world works but i think that's that's one of the reasons americans have such a perverted view of the universe is like all we consume are these stories in media where they're not true it's they're just good stories but because yes, we're consuming them all the time we think that's how the world works you know so don't tell them so don't tell stories about the most the absolute most vulnerable people in our in our in this country without giving them a shred of honesty and dignity you know yeah like some some person watches the fit watches fisher king and then goes up to some homeless guy, you know, and it's and it's like and it's like, oh, do you miss your wife? And he, you know, and he he, he yeah. gets he gets upset and like it, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking it too seriously, but I don't think I am because there aren't very many movies about homeless people. That's true. There's this one and the the, the Harvard one with Joe Pesci. What's that one called? I, I there I guess maybe there was like a series a few homeless movies that came out around this time that were like about like, like wise homeless people, homeless people. Yeah, yeah exactly wise I think there were well people. I think there was this whole idea in culture at the time I mean this was like comic relief time right like this is like what Robin Williams is devoting so much of his time to well his... it's that period of like and and we still live in this which is that like you can't look at somebody who is actually deeply affected by oppression and societal failures. And think about those elements to 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 their to their situation. You have to look at them and say, but but they're a good person personally, right? Yeah. Right. You 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 know you can't you need a reason to like them because otherwise they're a failure or they're a loser. You know. I mean, it's just the way I think people, especially people like that, like interface with the world. I mean, that's how they would think about like if they met you or me at a party, it would be like they would just think like, oh, that's just like some loser unless we had no. like some reason, you know, that we were worth caring about. I, 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 this, I, I mean, I disagree because um, the status that we already have when we walk into a party is much different than the status of a person who walks into a party that doesn't have clean clothes on. Yeah. All right. Wait, you know? do you clean your clothes before you go to a party? Is that something you I should be saying? doing? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, it, <laughs> no, it, I know, you know what you mean. I know what you mean, and I, I appreciate it's not on the same level. But I'm just saying that's how people interact with people. Is like, I mean, especially if you live in New York City, you're just confronted with mi literally millions of people all day that you are just screening out. So it's like, in order for you to focus in on somebody and care about them, I mean, isn't there doesn't there have to be some specific reason for you to care about them? Well, I think the focus on personal narrative, right, is what leads us to when Michael Brown gets, you know, killed, get, gets shot. By, by a cop that conservative media immediately is like oh he liked to smoke pot right you know I mean, like okay, it's yeah. it, it it it's it's kind of a poison that it either gives people um the excuse to care or the excuse to not care so that they have an excuse to confront or not confront their own biases or um you know problems in the in 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 society chris we live in a society we live in a society and yet you take part in society hmm interesting yeah yeah um yeah so i mean I, what have we grown out of it's i think i don't think that anybody but like some sort of weird conservative filmmaker would 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 make this movie now no. But, you know, I don't uh, know. I mean, yeah, but we're talking about the pursuit of happiness. I mean, okay, that, at this point, that's 15 years old, which is crazy to think about. But, like, 
it's not that different. It's not that different of a movie, you know. Never underestimate the 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 naivety of people making movies, right? Like they're there's their a complete disconnection from everyday reality. Yes. Yeah, right. They're, they're, they're yeah. just doing an impression of reality based on what they've seen in TV shows from when they were a kid. You know, yeah, that's basically. Exactly. And the things they see from outside their limousine window, which, by the way, there is more than one scene where Jeff Bridges is looking out from inside of a limousine to give you an idea of where the this movie is coming from, you know. Oh, we didn't even talk about the um, the the gay homeless man in this movie. Oh yeah, um, which is which, what did you think? Was that offensive or was that not offensive? Um, I truly love the scene where he sings for Amanda Plummer. It's one of my favorite scenes of uh, of the movie. I, I I love the look of it. I love the way the lipstick looks, the way the dress, the beard. I think it's such a fun moment. I yeah. don't care, like I don't care if it's offensive. I, I I just thought it was just aesthetically a very pleasing scene. Um. The scene where they're in the hospital and he is sort of giving a very clear, succinct reason as to why he's homeless. Like Jeff Bridges asks him, have you always like been like this or did you one day just lose it? Or it was a slow, gradual process. And he gives a very succinct answer as to why he's crazy. <laughs> and again, it's just like, come on. Yeah, come on. And I guess, and, and yes, the answer he gives is like, empathetic for the moment because he says i watched all my friends die and it's like i guess good on a, a movie in 1991 for at least addressing the aids epidemic in some form but um he's also still as a gay character kind of a joke uh that's the thing and like that's why is it offensive or not it's kind of like you know, it's the, like the Robin Williams version of what a gay person sounds like. You know, it's not yeah. Robin Williams doing it. It's this actor, Michael Jeter, who I know from Evening Shade, which was a big hit in my house in the in the 90s. Because uh, it was Burt Reynolds as a, as the coach of like basically FSU, but they never come out and say it's FSU. Burt, Burt went to FSU and played football. So, you know, it's like not a big deal. Was that um, a show? Yeah, this show Evening Shade. If you never, Ozzie Davis was on it and Michael Jeter was on it. And uh, yeah, Burt Reynolds played a college football coach. Cool. No, it was terrible. I think it was oh. really bad. But like, yeah, Michael Jeter's doing this thing, and it's like, uh, it's it's human, and it's like I am sure that there were people like this. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure, especially mm -hmm. at this time in the you know late '80s, early '90s in New York City, I'm sure there were lots of people like this. But it, at today, watching it today, you're kind of it's like a straight person's impression of a gay person, you know, and it's, it doesn't it doesn't read great, I would say. And also you're telling it's 1991, right? We're not that far away from the AIDS epidemic. I would argue we're not far away from it at all. We're yeah, it's still like still going on, basically. still going on. And so you're going to tell me that this guy who 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 is generally scared of homeless people, it seems, is lives in a pretty closed off world is going to sit in a hospital and hold a bleeding gay homeless man in his arms without question. I, yeah. I, I don't believe that for that character. And I think that that's kind of dishonest too, to have this, this, this gay man talk about watching all of his friends die of AIDS and he's sitting there bleeding in someone in, in this guy's arms and Jeff Bridges, character doesn't bat an eye and, He's not that it's not because he's human. It's not because it's like he, it's his humanistic side. That's not what it is. The movie just doesn't care to really address it. 
I mean, if you say so, Ricky, it sounds like you were just calling it a courageous movie that he was holding the hand of this man and not batting an eye. And that what an example that's setting for everyone. Well, I think of like, I, I mean, yeah, it, 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 you could you could take it that way. And that that that's 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 great. But it also seems having its cake and eating it at the same time. <laughs> no, I agree. I also agree. Yeah. Um, I think about the fourth season of The Wire, which I watched recently, which is that like in the second episode or third episode of that sh- of that season, Presbo has a student that gets her face cut. And when he's like, it's kind of decompressing with the, 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 the vice principal or the administrator or something and talking about like where this girl's from and what's going on. They're like, she's probably going to get put back in a group home. She grew up in group homes, foster fo- foster homes, bounced around for a while. But don't worry, she wasn't positive. And he's like, what? Positive? And he's like, and they're like, HIV. And he's like, oh, okay. Right? Like, it's not, it, it, that's in 2006. Yeah. Yeah. 1991, yeah. New York City. It's like, yeah, it would make sense that you would you would you would see a, a a gay homeless man who had seen all of his friends die, but I don't think I don't think Jeff Bridges, the character that he is, would be as as willing to be close to that person. It's almost like you would expect this movie to have like a gag, like he would pull his hand back and like go wash his hands or something, or like wipe them on a big handkerchief, you know? Yes, that's the kind which, of movie this is. You which know? would honestly, I think that would be more honest and it would you know it would be funny because you would be like what a douchebag you know and it would be honest because it's like oh that is something this douchebag would do five six years later you have the people versus larry flint which has like i i think one of the most human moments in regards to a a, a character with hiv for this time which is uh larry flint's wife played by courtney love has aids and while he's in prison, she tells him that and also says that no one at the company will listen to her or look at her and they don't want to be around her. And so he calls the company, he fires everybody there. And then when he gets out of jail, he, he, you know, he brings her into the office and everybody's still there. And he's like, I thought I told all of you that you were fired. And then, and every, no one moves and he goes, it's okay. And he goes, this is what we're going to do. Everybody come up here. This is Althea, my wife. You know her, right? Shake her hand. Say hi. Shake her hand. And he's forcing everybody to shake her hand. And it's like, that is like a very honest depiction of that period of that period of time and how characters would, would, would react that way. Like Larry Flint, it's his wife. And he's also a renegade and icon, an iconoclast. So he's going to be the one to lead this charge. Right. He's not just a normal person. Right, right. I mean, when right. I was in 1991, when I was like eight or nine years old, we, I remember people, a lot of people still didn't know if, like, if AIDS was just a blood trans, uh, transmitted via blood. I mean, smart people did, but dumb people didn't. And I mean, it was the kind of thing, it was like a scary thing that, I mean, I can remember like kids on the playground would like spit on you and go, like, oh, I have AIDS. You know? Yeah. And you were like, oh, my God, do they? I, is that how you get AIDS? I don't know. Oh, my God. There's also a scene in, in People versus Larry Flint when he first gets out of jail and he gets in the limo with Althea, his wife. He kisses her and he calls her a <laughs> goddamn junkie AIDS bitch. <laughs> kisses, her, kisses her lovingly, which is like it's so romantic and wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Hey, on that note, Ricky, I think we did it, brother. Like, I think we did the whole thing. 
The Fisher King came out September 20th, 1991. It was directed by Terry Gilliam and it starred Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges. According to the podcast 30 years later, check it out if you like visual images of New York City. Don't check it out if you're worried about an honest depiction of homelessness. How's that? That was great. That was great. Drop yeah. it right at the front. You know. Do you think we should get that kid lights camera Jackson every sometime to just record like intros and outros for us? <laughs> you fucking love this guy. You I think love it'd be lights so funny. camera Jackson. He'd be like, like for this one, he'd be like Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges starring Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Is it worth seeing? Are they fishing for gold? Are coming up empty? <laughs> lights camera Jackson. Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges are in the Big Apple, but is it rotten to the core? We find out in The Fisher King. <laughs> LCJ, if you listen to this, you know, we don't really want you as a guest for a full hour, but a couple intros, outros, that would be great. <laughs> Do you ever get scared when you watch something like that and say, God, it really could be me at some point, you know? Yeah. It's terrifying because it's almost too real, you know? God, just with a quick of fate, I could be here. And it has happened to people like that where, you know, something happens and boom. Mm-hmm. And with, especially with a lot of these, a lot of people in the streets now in most cities are former mental patients. Mm-hmm. Either let out because of lack of funding or, you know, or never put in. How do you tell I mean, people uh, what this movie is about? I mean... It's about a lot of things, but it's a little difficult to grasp in like two seconds. I don't it? think you can tell them about one thing. I think that's what it doesn't come and say. It's about trust. And it's about compassion. It's about pain. It's, and then you start getting in this list of, if in anything, the core of it is about, it is about compassion. And it's a, in that sense, it uses a, a, that Christian myth of the Fisher King, which is about the nature of compassion and what is it. And... It is not out looking all over the place, but it's, you know, it is right there in front of you and dealing with the simplest pains. To see someone, it's like the last line of the thing, I, I didn't see a king, I only saw a man who was thirsty. 